Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Mike Volkov brings 35 years of legal experience. Matt Kelly is the founder and editor of Radical Compliance. Jay Rosen is Mr. Monitor who knows his way around the culture of compliance. And Jonathan Armstrong, a partner at Cordery Compliance in London, rounds out this top group of compliance practitioners. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode of Everything Compliance, Jonathan Armstrong discusses the KBR win at the UK Supreme Court. Jonathan Marks takes a look at the fraud Pentagon in the era of coronavirus and fraud around COVID-19 issues. Jay Rosen talks about Tom Brady's and greatness and what does it mean for compliance. Matt Kelly looks at the new CDC guidance regarding vaccinations and what it might mean for the compliance professional. Shoutouts and rants follow the commentary. I know you'll enjoy this episode. Everything Compliance is a production of Compliance Podcast Network. Today we have Jonathan Armstrong from an undisclosed location uh, somewhere in the United Kingdom, allegedly. Uh, Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance. Jonathan Marks, who just informed us he had 29 inches of snow outside his house. And Mr. Monitor himself, Jay Rosen. Gentlemen, welcome. Hello, Tommy. So we're going to go east to west today. So, uh, Mr. Armstrong, what has been on your mind? Yeah, one of the most interesting cases I think we've had uh, across our desk in the last week or so has been the success for KBR in its fight with the Serious Fraud Office. And this concerns something called Section 2 notices, which many of us have been troubled by for some time. And effectively, they're a way of the Serious Fraud Office serving a notice on somebody to demand that they deliver up documents and there's a criminal penalty if they don't. And they have been used controversially in the ENRC case when uh, it has been alleged that they were used to sort of circumvent uh, privilege and to obtain documents to which the uh, SFO wouldn't ordinarily be entitled. And this case is a sort of part of the uh, SFO's long-running investigation into uh, Unit Oil, a Monaco-based entity. And you might remember that we talked about this uh, before, uh, particularly about the convictions that the SFO managed to obtain in a COVID-safe trial last year uh, and those convictions. But effectively what happened here is that In April 2017, the SFO served Section 2 notices on KBR's UK subsidiary, Kellogg Brown and Root Limited. We'll call that KBR UK for ease. And KBR UK said, I'm simplifying, here are some documents, but there are another set of documents that our US parent has in there. Um, uh, custody and possession, and uh, you'll have to ask 
them for those documents. And so the uh, SFO engaged in communications with KBR US, and there came a time when KBR US were invited in to chat things through at the SFO's HQ in London. The SFO made it clear that they didn't want that just to be a lawyer to lawyer or prosecutor to lawyer meeting, that they wanted representatives from KBR US in the room. And the chief compliance officer and general counsel uh, came over the Atlantic uh, to London. There was a meeting when the general counsel was asked if she would hand the documents over. And it seems that she said that she would go back to the US and talk it through with colleagues and let the SFO know the decision, at which time a notice was served on her in the room uh, under Section 2 on criminal penalty, effectively saying, well, you don't have the luxury of going back and thinking about it. We're going to serve the notice on you right here, right now. And the evidence seemed to be that the SFO had at least had this as a plan uh, at the very latest uh, at the time the meeting started. The evidence seemed to be that there was a draft notice that already existed and the general counsel's name was added to that uh, when it was handed to her. And I think the case is, is, is troubling because there is at least a suspicion that the meeting was in part engineered to get somebody within the jurisdiction to serve them with a notice. And, and, and Tom, you and I both know Barry V2, one of the lawyers involved in this case, and I think that many people are, are potentially troubled by what could have gone on in that case. Uh, and the case, uh, and the Section Two notice, uh, there was uh, there was an agreed extension, and then uh, KBR US challenged it, and they said uh, first of all that Section Two notices didn't have extraterritorial effect, and they also argued that it wasn't uh, properly served, and it went to the uh, divisional court, which is a sort of high court on steroids. You have to have two judges sitting. And the uh, the divisional court broadly agreed with the uh, SFO. So it went up to the Supreme Court, who uh, handed their judgment down on February 5th. And effectively, they just looked at one aspect of the case. They didn't look at whether the um, service was proper, et cetera, et cetera. They looked at whether uh, Section 2 notices did have extraterritorial effect, and they said that they didn't. And effectively, because there wasn't enough connection from KBR US with the UK jurisdiction. Now, what the Supreme Court made clear is that this is a relatively rare case. As you'll remember, the UK bribery legislation does have extraterritorial effect. So if you're a US corporation with a 
a UK subsidiary, then the UK subsidiary is subject to the Bribery Act. If you're uh, if there's an act of bribery where it's alleged UK nationals are involved, then the Bribery Act uh, still applies. And if the uh, act of bribery takes place on UK soil, so for example, if there had been meetings at Heathrow with KBR US executives and Uniroyal executives in the same hotel room, then, then again, the Bribery Act would have applied there. So the court isn't limiting the effects of the Bribery Act. It's limiting the operation of these somewhat draconian Section 2 notices and saying that you have to have more of a connection with the UK for the Section 2 notice to be served. And the Supreme Court have said that, of course, there are mutual legal assistance processes in place which could be used. So, for example, the SFO could have requested those documents or requested the assistance of the DOJ uh, to obtain those documents. And it seemed that they hadn't done that. That may be, reading between the lines, because there was some sort of a ugly bun fight between the SFO and the US authorities over who was going to prosecute whom. Uh, the only other thing to say, I think, for completeness is, of course, that um, the UK has altered its legislation since 2017 when these Section 2 notices were served. There is a new power that the SFO has now catchily called the Crime Open Brackets Overseas Production Orders Close Brackets Act 2019, which in similar circumstances could allow the uh, SFO to serve uh, an order because there are some bilateral arrangements between the uh, UK and the US. But those, uh, the provisions under the 29 Act are, uh, 2019 Act are harder uh, to set up and they could be subject to challenge. So in some respects, it's a loss for the SFO and in some respects, their wings have been clipped, certainly in their use of uh, the Section 2 notices. And it might be that they have to go through more established channels in cases like this in future. Jonathan, the manner in which the SFO delivered the Section 2 notice uh, requesting KBR to bring U.S. personnel to the United Kingdom for a meeting uh, and then laying that on them, saying, you know, I have jurisdiction, um, seems to me uh, I, I was offended by that. And I was wondering, did that fact, do you think that fact had any influence on the UK courts? Are they really focused on strictly on the legal issues in front of them? I, I don't know is the honest answer, but it's a longstanding principle of uh in the UK, we have this saying, he who comes to equity must come with clean hands. And this is legal jurisdiction, not equitable jurisdiction. And we could have a, a legal history lesson on how they are different. But I think what it does illustrate is that there's this overriding uh, sense of fairness, I think, amongst uh, judges and the Supreme Court particularly. And I think if it is true that the SFO were not transparent with the two representatives who came over from the US. I mean, they obviously 
didn't think they were coming over for high tea, you know, buns and uh, and a brew. They obviously knew that they were coming over to talk about a serious case. But I, I'm not sure that the SFO were transparent about what the consequences might be of any uh, failure to accede to a request. And I think that that probably has influenced the judges in this case. You know, prosecutors have to behave fairly, and that applies to your, you know, jobbing prosecutor dealing with shoplifting and theft offences, and it applies the same, if not more so, to those dealing with the most serious offences, which can deprive people of their liberty. So we we ought to... Um, have that sense of fairness in mind, and I suspect the prosecutors will have that in mind more going forwards, and I think that's probably a message that the court here intended uh, to give out. Uh, let's go across the pond to Matt Kelly. Matt, what's on your mind? Yeah, sure, Tom. So I am here today to talk about everybody's favorite virus, COVID-19, um, we had something interesting happen earlier this week that I think compliance officers would do well to pay attention to. Uh, on February 10, Wednesday, the Centers for Disease Control updated their guidance about what fully vaccinated people can or cannot do. And to be clear, this is the CDC guidance defines a fully vaccinated person as somebody who has taken whatever course of vaccine dosage you need. So whether that's one dose for whatever new vaccines might come along or the two doses right now for the vaccines that are available. Um, if you have received your full course of vaccination and it has been two weeks since your final vaccination dose and you have no symptoms since then, then in that case, if you, the fully vaccinated person, uh, have an exposure to somebody who has COVID-19, you're exposed to a COVID outbreak, you do not need to quarantine anymore. Now, why is that significant? Uh, because for the first time ever, we have the CDC saying fully vaccinated people get some special privileges that the rest of us don't. And I think compliance officers should do like would do well to consider the implications of what that is and of that point. Um, I think that, you know, OK, we might all say, isn't this a bit academic? Uh, it's only an academic distinction right now, because at least in America and in most parts of the world, nobody's getting vaccinated. Only a tiny sliver of the population have been. Uh, but by May or June and certainly by this summer, when a significant portion of the general public is vaccinated, but a significant portion still isn't, I think we're going to have some really contentious issues arise about what can vaccinated people do in the workplace? What can they do in the economic sphere generally? I'll give you an example. Um, if a vaccinated person does not need to quarantine when they've had a COVID exposure, does that mean a company could compel vaccinated people to come to work every day? Short answer, according to several of the HR lawyers I have talked to, is that, yes, a company could do that. Um, and then now let's think it through. In the United States, a company can also compel employees to get vaccinated as part of their terms of employment. So let's start putting this together. Suddenly, you could see how some companies, if they wanted 
could really put themselves on a fast track back to reopening their offices by saying, anybody who works for us, as soon as you are eligible for a vaccine, you got to go get vaccinated. And once you're fully vaccinated, you got to come back to work because either you won't have a COVID exposure and you're fine or you will. And the CDC still says you're fine. What does all of that mean for corporate culture, for uh, complaints about employee favoritism or retaliation? What does it mean about privacy data if you are going around collecting this information from employees? What does it mean for, say, uh, unions that might be negotiating reopening of normal office uh, procedures? We're seeing this all over the country right now in school districts, for example, where the districts wants to reopen and they want to make sure that the district is safe, according to what? Usually they say according to CDC guidelines. And the teacher unions on the other side say, well, we don't want to go back unless it's safe. Now the CDC has tweaked the standard for safe for fully vaccinated people. So at least in theory, a district could turn around and say, we're all four teachers getting vaccinated right now. And as soon as you do, you have to come back into the class. I can see that being a very fractious and contentious discussion, at least for several months. And then we also, as the summer progresses, let's start to play this out. Uh, let's think through what does this mean for customers that you may or may not want to have visiting your office? Um, where are you going to have any sort of quarantine or exclusion policy that could apply to unvaccinated people, but it wouldn't apply to fully vaccinated people? How are we going to know who's who? How are we going to let them fly to business trips? How are we going to let them fly through the airport generally? Um, and this is all a long-winded way of what I think is going to be the other big granddaddy headache that we're all going to have to think about by probably August or so. What the CDC really said, and I'm going to quote it because it is worth write, reading out, um, asymptomatic people which typically are going to be people who have had the vaccine. You're no longer likely to get it and you're no longer likely to have any symptoms. Asymptomatic people are much less likely to transmit COVID and avoiding unnecessary quarantine may outlive or outweigh the potential but unknown risk of transmission. They're kind of getting toward what a lot of people are starting to wonder about and what some of the data is starting to suggest is that once you get COVID, or once you, I'm sorry, once you get vaccinated, you're much less likely to spread this disease. Either you're not going to get it, or when you get it, you'll have such a tiny amount of the virus that you're not going to spread it. So if you are not a public health risk, why am I wearing a mask in public? That's going to be the issue that a lot of people are going to start to raise, I would suspect, by um, July or so. And then you're going to have to think about how do we enforce mask orders? What do we do about mask orders? What's the right answer to that. I don't know. I am very much in favor of wearing a mask when you're outside right now. And if a store says I have to wear one, I'm fine with that. But I can foresee the day coming when we are going to revisit the mask wars. We're going to revisit the quarantine wars. We're going to revisit a whole lot of stuff as we reintegrate fully vaccinated people into what kind of feels like a normal life. Remember years and years ago, we had that. We're going to start to get back to that. And I just I would caution compliance officers to think through 
how are you getting your regulatory change information here? The CDC just very quietly published this update about quarantines for fully vaccinated people. How are you tracking that information? How are you tracking your state and local guidelines on what you can or cannot do? In the United States, that can vary a lot. Um, how are you going to think about training managers on how to handle fully vaccinated people and what the policies are about what you can or can't ask them to do? What's the difference between what you're legally able to do and what you are, what might be wiser for you to do? Just because you can maybe have a heavy handed approach. I don't necessarily know that you should, but I've been thinking a lot about this. And yet again, it reminds us that COVID vaccinations are going to have a lot of repercussions for employee personnel um, and inter-office policy and how you train people, what they're complaining about, how you're going to res resolve those complaints. Think this through, because this is the Pandora's box, in my opinion. For the first time, the CDC has said fully vaccinated people can be treated differently than non-vaccinated people. Maybe by 2021 or 22, we'll all be fully vaccinated. This will all go away. That's not today. It's not tomorrow. By the summer, this is going to be a very modeled picture. And so... Rock yourselves out, compliance people. I think uh, we're going to be in for a, a bit of a bumpy ride. Jonathan Armstrong, do you have a comment or question for Matt? Yeah, I do. Uh, I've got both, if you'll indulge me. Um, I think from, from our perspective, I think we're already talking about these issues uh, quite a lot. I think, in part, that's a percentage thing. You know, we now have 135 million people vaccinated in the UK. Most of them have only had their first vaccination. And that's, I think that's not a bad achievement, 13.5 million versus a population of about 66 million. So I think it's becoming more of a live issue here. Of course, most people have only had their first jab, uh, not their second. And, 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 the thought still seems to be that you need both uh, to be uh, fully effective. But one issue that we've started to see here as well is in the UK and in most of Europe, the uh, vaccines are only in the possession of governments. And we're already starting to see people trying to beat the system for their own employees. We've had one smallish organization, I think, ring an NHS vaccination center and say, you must have the odd vaccination left at the end of the day to people who haven't shown up. What about us sending our employees across to you at the end of the day? They can use up spare vaccine and we'd be very willing to make a donation to a charity of okay. your choice. Uh, we've also seen allegations, which I think are unfounded, that a soccer club jumped the queue. Uh, I, I think it's, from what I hear, more benign than that. The vaccination centre rightly thought they had vaccines left at the end of the day, went onto the street and grabbed people and vaccinated them. And you'd want, you'd want the... Uh, the health authorities to do that, to use a vaccine at the end of the day. But I, I just think we're already starting to see at least allegations that there's bribery involved with employers trying to get their employees done first so they can return to normal more quickly. And is that something that 
you're seeing in the U.S. or you think might happen in the U.S.? Uh, yeah, I, absolutely. I think that will happen. I think it'll happen around the world. I have read reports that at least in some countries, there are manufacturers making COVID vaccines for sale on the open market. So uh, that's not anywhere here. It is in some of the places that you would see on the lower end of the corruption perception index. But, you know, that's going to go on. Um, I think that this will this has the potential to catch a lot of companies flat footed, because while we don't have a lot of vaccines right now, um, don't forget that by March, Johnson & Johnson's vaccine, which is one shot, which is easy to transmit, easy to manufacture, easy to store, um, that's going to be commercially available in the United States. I think that's going to change a lot because suddenly a whole lot more people will be able to get the vaccine. That's where you will be able to stro stroll down to your nearest drugstore. They will have it in a refrigerator under the counter and they could give it to you right there. All the other special trappings about how do we track all of this and whatnot, that has yet to be worked out. But it's going to be far easier than these super cold uh, Pfizer and you know, um, Moderna vaccines that you really you need to make a specific appointment. And it's difficult to get them here and there. That's all going to go away in a matter of weeks. And then suddenly large numbers of people will be vaccinated. If you look at the data out of Israel which is further along in vaccinating its country, its population than anywhere else in the world, Israel has found, oh my goodness, when you vaccinate a large number of people, suddenly nobody gets sick anymore. It's almost like the vaccine is working like every other vaccine we've come up with. Um, but with every other vaccine, we have, you know, it's taken us years to mass vaccinate people. I don't think that's going to happen here. I think most countries are going to be on the ball and most people are going to demand, I'll be vaccinated the moment somebody offers me one. I will have my sleeve rolled up. But if we are going to vaccinate people very quickly, the questions about that interim trans transitory period where some are vaccinated and some aren't, those are going to come upon us pretty quickly. Um, and the last thing I would call out is so many of us say we want to return to normal. Think about what that is, because I remember normal. Lots of us went to sick or went to work feeling sick all the time. We had colds, we had flus, and we still went to work. We went to school. I went on the subway. I went to business conferences while I was sick, while I was getting other people sick. But it wasn't a big deal because nobody dies of the common cold. Eventually, if we want a return to normal, we are going to get to a point where people will be ill with covid that they have the virus in it but they've been vaccinated everybody around them has been vaccinated nobody's going to care that's what has to exist for us to get back to normal i don't know if that's 2022 or 2025 or 2100 when my grandkids are doing it but we have to think about how we're going to handle those questions because i suspect these questions are going to happen and come upon us a lot faster than we expect and I don't know what the right answer is. I just appreciate that this is a fastball that's coming. The CDC and its most recent pronouncement here, that's just the first pitch. Matt, have you seen or rather have you thought about this in the context of travel uh, with airlines, um, what they're going to require? Are they going to require evidence of vaccinations? Uh, will we start having to uh, carry shot cards, for instance, for domestic travel? Any thoughts along those lines? I mean, I have only thought about it in the layman's perspective that uh, I'm aware that people are discussing it. 
Uh, I don't think that's any big deal because we need to show proof of immunization for all sorts of things. Uh, you can't enroll your children in school without proof of immunization. You can't go to certain parts of the world without a yellow card uh, along with your passport showing you've been vaccinated for yellow fever. I have one of those upstairs. Um, that's not anything new. But how would we establish that? Um, how would we get gain acceptance of that? Who's going to be the agency that publishes those? I know that there are vaccination cards people have gotten saying I got vaccinated. I don't know how much more authority that has than a little sticker I get every November that says I have voted. Um, I don't know what the, the, the framework would be, the regulatory apparatus to put that into place so you could do it. I do know there's at least one major U.S. airline. I can't remember which one, so I'm not going to say it out loud. But I know there is one that has already told its employees, we're going to require you to get vaccinated when you can. That will be a condition upon which you have to do to, to go to work. Um, but then once they're vaccinated, they can all go to work. The CDC has already said there would be no reason why they'd have to quarantine. So the company could pick up on that and say, all right, then there's no reason why you can't come to work. I don't know that a lot of businesses would take such a draconian approach, but it's there. It's something they could pick up. And let's just think through all the implications of deciding to do something like that. Jonathan Marks. Oh, Mr. Armstrong, it looks like you want to say three words. Three. Good luck. Good luck with that in Europe. <laughs> forced vaccinations for employees uh, and I'd, I'd buy tickets for that fight against the German Works Council with that uh, Jonathan Marks I have wanted to ask you about the fraud Pentagon because of the uh, reports by the ACFE and others of increase in fraud certainly under the PPP program perhaps PPE but I was wondering if the fraud, if you thought about the fraud Pentagon in the context of uh, COVID-19 and how it might apply. Well, I, I have, Tom, and we've had many conversations about this, but um, I'll try to get to the, to the meat of it very quickly. You know, for those of you out there that are not familiar with the fraud Pentagon, must have been uh, early in the uh, early 2000s, maybe late 1999, where I watched a movie uh, that had Mickey Monus in it. It was the Farmer movie. And it was how to steal, I think it was like $500,000 or something, or $500 million. And um, what, what became really apparent to me was, um, yeah, it was $500 million. What became really apparent to me is the human in the loop. And what I mean by that is the, the human factor in all of this. And so I started looking at things that happened after Farmore, Sendin, Forbes, Enron, Ken Lay, Jeff Skilling, Andy Festow, WorldCom, Bernie Ebers, Hell South. Skrushy, Tycho, Dennis Kozlowski, and so on and so forth. And what I tried to do is I tried to come up with a better model because I thought when Cressy originally came up with the three elements of fraud back in the 50s, you know, corporations looked a lot different. Companies looked a lot different. And I really was focusing on the human in the loop and that human element again. And so I started to profile these individuals. Yes, profile, not stereotype. These individuals. And I came up with a couple of things. One was there was a great sense of arrogance, you know, by these individuals. And this, there was also a, a, a lot of competence by these folks as well. And so I thought, well, if you took pressure, opportunity and rationalization, the three elements um, which, you know, which Cressy came up with and had competence and arrogance to it, is that a better model? Is that a better way to looking at this? And I could tell you that, 
you know, that drives the fraud risk assessment and drives a whole bunch of other things on the compliance side as well, which I'm not going to talk about today. But I will tell you that, you know, what it has done is it really has opened up my eyes uh, with regards to kind of even what's going on today. And I'll explain, you know, COVID-19, businesses are stressed. There's a lot of salespeople out there that are based on commissions. You know, there's this sense that you have to make up what you lost. You know, companies don't want to continue to report bad earnings. You know, there's also um, things going the other way. You know, are there are there write downs of assets because of their because under accounting rules or things of that nature? Are people not accruing expenses? You know, are people not being supervised? Are those controls that should be in place really are in place? Those monitoring controls. Is there really the four eyes principle? And what what I've come to what I've come to realize is that in this remote environment that we're living in or quasi remote environment that we're living in, people are taking shortcuts. You know, it's evident, um, you know, people are desperate. There is a great deal of pressure inserted in the system right now. And anyone out there that's listening, if you haven't dusted off your fraud risk assessment and you haven't come to realize that um, or, or looked at your compensation packages and those people that are getting bonuses based on earnings of your organization or some other metric that's really driven by something that is being affected by COVID-19, you know, um, I can tell you right now that you're, the, you have a heightened level of fraud risk. And so, you know, you know, that competence and that power to perform and that arrogance or lack of consciousness, you know, are, are those things that really need to be factored in here. And so, you know, when we talk about the fraud Pentagon, which, which by the way, actually made the timeline of fraud models from 1950 to, to 2016, and then you insert the, the fraud Pentagon into the meta model or the advanced meta model of fraud, where we look at the perpetrators and the crime and have to give Dr. Dick Riley and Dr. Scott Fleming credit also with me for the advanced meta model of fraud. I think it, I, I think it should allow organizations to think a little bit differently. And if you're a board member out there and you're listening to this and you don't realize the stress and the strain that's being put on people and the fact that, you know, there, there, there could be the, these added um, elements here that if if left unchecked could pose a serious risk for your organization shame on you um actually just shame on you and so you know um we have we have talked about this ad nauseum you know i think the model is a good model um i still remember that the, one of the best days as a professional i ever had there, there are a few of them um one is when jay rosen called me to wish me a happy birthday no i'm only kidding but the second one, which really is the first one, is Matt Kelly sent me a note one day. He was reading a case and he goes, I think I get your fraud Pentagon. Um, and he was still he was still at his old place. But I, I'm like, well, you know, I, I you know, Matt's a very, very astute person um, and he makes up his own mind. And to get that from someone and says, I, I think I get your fraud Pentagon really meant a whole lot to me. But I can assure you that's something that we implore and practice, you know, on a regular and ongoing basis. And um you know, if you take the fraud Pentagon and you look at the advanced meta model of fraud and you consider all the things under a COVID environment, bank covenants, um, revenue recognition, accruing expenses, disclosures, which the SEC has come out with and pounded people on. We've talked about the Cheesecake Factory, um, you know, debacle before. So all these types of things. Take a look at the individuals that are really here. Take a look at the human in the loop. Understand who those humans are. Understand those pressures and understand that if someone has that competence and arrogance combined with pressure, opportunity and rationalization, you know, that's just a recipe or could be a recipe 
to enhance, you know, or create a heightened level of fraud risk, or even worse, you wind up on the front page of, you know, the Wall Street Journal or the or or some paper over in the UK. So, um, you know, I, I do think it's something that um, is worthwhile taking a second look at, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity to kind of lay that out there. And uh, I'm open for questions. Uh, Jonathan, you mentioned uh, board members. What are the questions a board member should ask? And more uh, more pointedly, who does he ask them to? Does he ask them to a chief compliance officer? Does he ask them to a CFO? Does he ask them to the head of internal audit? Does he ask them to the head of internal controls? Yes, all of them. They should be looking at all of them. If I'm a board member and I'm a, and I'm part, and I'm part of the board, or I'm specifically I'm part of an audit committee, I'm asking all those individuals. You know, part of a good governance framework is that communication. And, you know, when we talk about communication, there's a sender and a medium and a receiver. And I always do this. And I say, well, that's communication, right? And everyone shakes their head. They go, yeah, that's communication. I said, nah, that's not communication. You need that feedback loop. And that's what the regulators have picked up on as well. And so if you're a board member, you're not getting that feedback from an oversight. How can you possibly, how can you possibly you know, be in an oversight position or, you know, maintain your fiduciary responsibilities with not having that regular and ongoing feedback. doesn't necessarily have to be COVID. It could be anything. So, you know, if I'm a board member, I'm asking my internal audit folks, I'm asking my compliance folks, I'm asking my internal controls folks, I'm asking my chief legal counsel, I'm asking my key gatekeepers, are they communicating and collaborating? Is risk siloed? Are we really communicating what those risks are? Is internal audit using their skills necessary to go out and test those things? Um, is compliance aware of what's going on? Maybe training needs to be revamped a little bit. You know, when we look at third parties, you know, we're bringing on third parties or onboarding a third party under, you know, FCPA, doing customer due diligence under this heightened requirement. Are we, are we taking shortcuts because we just don't have a second or third option? We need someone in the supply chain. So, you know, I think the bigger thing here is from a board perspective, and it's a great question, is, you know, board members, get off your hands. Be a participant. You just don't be a passenger. You know, you know if, 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 if uh, Caremark or uh, Bluebell has taught us anything, you know, you really can't just sit back and let things happen. You have to make sure that compliance is really functioning. You have to have some oversight in it. You have to start asking some tough questions. And you need that truth cocktail every now and again. You need that feedback. Because the other thing I will caution you on is that everybody loves to give great news, but they all don't like to give bad news. And in the environment that we're living in, if you give bad news, sometimes the squeaky wheel gets the oil. Sometimes the squeaky wheel, they change the tire. And so, you know, if you're a board member, you need to understand that. Uh, Kelly, do you have a comment or question for Jonathan? I do have a comment, I think, is, um, you know, one of the little bullet points that just shot across uh, the screen here was, a board member should ask about fraud. But I really, you know, it, what gets to me is that a board member should not be asking, what is our fraud risk? It should be much more, what does this thing we are thinking about doing? Layoffs, incentive plans, business expansions, whatever. What does this thing we're thinking about doing have, how does it change our potential fraud risk? Um, because I think way too many board members don't appreciate the fact that Almost any decision you're going to make like this in the in the pandemic environment, the very challenged environment, um, could have enormous implications for your fraud risk. They're not necessarily apparent. Um, but one of my favorite examples was a, a plastics manufacturer who made very boring, low-end commodity components, low-margin business. Along comes the pandemic, 
they started making plastic face masks, which last April were worth a king's ransom. And they suddenly realized our fraud risk is now going to be some dude in the loading dock is going to start fencing them on the black market. And we've never had to think about that because nobody ever wanted to fence boring plastic components before. Um, and questions like that, that really are not necessarily an obvious connection to fraud, but you need to be aware that almost anything you're doing these days could connect an impact fraud risk. No, Matt, I think that's that, that. those are great comments. And unpacking kind of what's going on is really the answer here, because, you know, you know, I'll take another example. You know, take COVID. You know, if people were laid off as a result of COVID, you know, now all of a sudden, how does that upset our control environment? Yep. If we had a control or a supervisory control and that individual's not there and we slot somebody in there, do they have the skills or capabilities to really understand what they're supposed to be doing? Maybe, maybe not. You know, and so, you know, again, you know, I think board members have gotten away with a lot for a long period of time. I hope to serve on a board one day, but um, a publicly traded board. But I think it's really time to ask those tough questions and start unpacking these things and really challenging those people in those positions. Chief compliance officers, chief audit executives, you know, general counsels, you know, head of internal controls. All these folks should be called. And they should really be looking at how are they communicating and collaborating and how is this really impacting our ecosystem? And, and how are we dealing with that from a risk management perspective? Uh, Jay Rosen, for those not in our studio audience, he is in his Patriots jersey. What is on your mind? Thanks, Tom. The Patriot way, GOAT, the greatest of all time. If they want you to cook the dinner, at least they ought to let you shop for some in the groceries and next man up. No one can deny the string of successes, nine Super Bowl appearances, and six victories by the tandem of Bill Belichick and Tom Brady. Suddenly, this long-term relationship came to an abrupt halt last March when the New England Patriots decided to cut bait and move on from, at that time, their 42-year-old quarterback. Now the question's being asked, who is more responsible for the success, Brady or Belichick, or is it a combination of both? Some people think the definitive answer was revealed last Sunday on February 7th when Brady won his seventh Lombardi trophy. Now the GOAT is seven for 10 in Super Bowl championships. This may not only be a discussion of individual accolades, but it may also be a larger discussion about the compliance and more precisely, culture with a capital C. When we look at a compliance, when we look at compliance in an organization, it's not only about following the rules, but it's also a subset of something greater of the culture that exists in the workplace. Sometimes this is born by tradition, other times it's directly the result of senior management team and the board of directors. You've heard the pithy titles, tone at the top, mood at the middle, buzz at the bottom. While you got to love the alliteration, what does this all mean? And does it reveal any clues as to the relationship between Messier's Brady and Belichick? And ultimately, does it answer the question, who bears more responsibility or who contributed more to their mutual success? Some people say that Brady is a system quarterback and he was a creation of Belichick. One moment, Drew Bledsoe is knocked out of the game by the Jets with a shared blood vessel, and the next minute, Brady is on the field. And then Belichick took some dust from the sidelines, breathed some football magic into it, and voila, 
TB12 was born. Over 20 years or so, Brady progressed from being the quarterback who follows a conservative playbook not to lose the game and grows into an offensive juggernaut juggernaut with 50 touchdown season throwing those beautiful dimes to Randy Moss, Wes Welker, and Gronk back in 2007. As Brady matures into his tenure in New England and his partnership with Belichick, they spend many late nights and early mornings watching film and coming up with a myriad of ways to decimate the competition. Jeffrey Katzenberg, one of the architects of the Walt Disney Company's miraculous turnaround in the 80s, was infamous for telling underlings, if you don't go to work on Saturday, don't bother coming in on Sunday. This is a quote that he now avows, and he says he meant at the time, but he doesn't mean it anymore. Katzenberg now says that you learn that people are at their best when they have balance in their life. Come to think of it, Katzenberg had his own troubles with a business partner, with Michael Eisner, leading up to their own Brady-Belichick breakout that played out on movie screens and theme parks around the world when Katzenberg left Disney to contribute his animated film experience to the billion-dollar startup DreamWorks and DreamWorks Animation. But alas, I digress on another dynamic duo. So Tom said I was going to speak about compliance and culture. Which one is it? Yes, we need corporate rules to follow, and there certainly are ramifications for not following the rules. And yes, our workplaces should be meritocracies. People should be encouraged to do the right thing. Additionally, they should be recognized and promoted for individual achievements. Okay, I'm with you so far. But we must also allow our employees to grow and contribute to our organizations. And this is where Belichick and Brady's relationship starts to fray and break down. And moving from a don't lose the game to a drawing up the winning play in the huddle quarterback, Tom Brady grew into the 43-year-old seven-time Super Bowl greatest of all time. Now, Bill might be a crusty old head coach set in his ways, but when he let Tom Brady leave the New England fold, it set up the discussion we're having today. All Tom wanted to do was to contribute to the Patriots and help them win 10 to 14 games a year during the regular season and maybe a couple more Super Bowls, too. But these two men were supposed to share a common goal. Now, the moment Tom showed up in Tampa Bay, he picked up his cell phone and encouraged some friends to join him. Hey, Rob, Antonio, Leonard Fournette. Hey, guys, I'm putting together a football team and we are going to have some fun. F-U-N, fun. Now I extremely doubt that this is the way that Belichick recruits new talent to the Patriots. So which is it? Nature or nurture? Katzenberg or Eisner? Belichick or Brady? Each party has its strengths, passions, and reasons why they work so well together. So I guess I'm saying that it's both compliance and culture with the matter. And those managers and board members who can successfully merge these two realms will be more successful. So if I had to choose, in my best RuPaul, TB12, you stay, Bill Belichick, sashay away. On that note, we are going to move to shouts, outs, and rants. Uh, I will note for the record that is the first time RuPaul has been quoted in any episode of Everything Compliance. Uh, we're going to take the same uh, uh, order. So, Mr. Armstrong, do you have a shout-out and or rant for us? Well, I'm a bit torn. I um, 
am saluting the work of COVID marshals in the UK, those volunteers who stepped up and helped that 13 and a half million people be vaccinated. And particularly if you have access to the BBC video of Hugh Bonneville, he of Downton mm -hmm. Abbey and Paddington fame, acting as a COVID marshal, I, I salute him and his ilk. And for full disclosure, my, my wife is one as well. But uh, I think what I've settled on is a, a shout out to the judiciary and to lawyers somewhat self in a somewhat self-congratulatory way for keeping going whilst all this is going on. And in particular, I think that's brought to light by Judge Roy Ferguson over there in Texas and the Texas bar, including Rod Ponta, now I guess Tom, known as Tiddles, um, who appeared during a hearing as a cat. So that was a, uh, I guess, a meowvelous example of uh, keeping the wheels of justice moving. I'm, I'm going to read so, that point. What could be more perfect? <laughs> oh! <laughs> Matt Kelly, can you follow that? Uh, well, you know, I will note that uh, the day after the cat video, uh, there was a hearing in the House Financial Services Committee where one of the speakers remoted in on Zoom, and he was upside down. As he was testimony. Uh, I have to admit, I think I would rather be a cat than be portrayed upside down. I'm not quite sure why. Um, so I actually am going to give a shout out today to Congressman Adam Kinzinger, a Republican from downstate Illinois, who is one of the most outspoken Republicans uh, in favor of impeaching President Trump and um, finding him guilty, convicting him of his inciting an insurrection and getting rid of Donald Trump from public office. Uh, of course, a Republican doing this, that is way out of step with most of the Republican Party these days. It takes a lot of guts to be able to go and stand up and call out the obvious to your compatriots, who I think have many of them have sailed off the rightward edge of lunacy. Um, but he and uh, Liz Cheney and several of the other Republicans who have stepped forward and did the right thing against immense political pressure to say that Donald Trump should be impeached, he should be convicted, he should be barred from future office, uh, takes a lot of guts for them. And uh, Kinzinger in particular has been outspoken writing about and talking about the need to expel the likes of Donald Trump from the body, body politic in America. So uh, I am thankful for him. It shows us that there are at least some people left in the Republican Party still who understand what America is about and uh, they support American values and good for him. Uh, Jonathan Marks, I was going to ask you to just continue your uh, rant uh, on the fraud Pentagon, but uh, perhaps do you have a shout out or another rant for us? No, I, I have a shout out to, uh, I don't know if you guys saw this, to Kay Johnson, who was the chief compliance officer at a subsidiary at National Holdings for investigating um, the, uh, the chief executive officer over possible insider trading and then getting fired as a result of that. Um, admittedly, I have not read the case yet, but I, I think that being in, in that position, the chief compliance officer's position, and doing what she did and reading a little bit about this case so far, it, it's, it's, um, it, it's unnerving to me that, um, uh, you know, and I think there's going to be a settlement here. It's unnerving to me that, 
um, people don't think that you know they're they're impervious or they're 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 Teflon to these types of investigations. If in fact there is you know if if, if there is some merit here, so I wanted to give her a shout out. I think that was a, a pretty gutsy thing to do, and I applaud her for her efforts. I I don't know why she was you know eventually terminated, whether it was because of this or something else, but um, you know more to come on that for sure. And then, um, you know, I, I don't have a, I don't have an actual rant this week, but also another small little shout out to the fact that um, good for Tom Brady for celebrating after winning another Super Bowl. Nice to see uh, a sports figure have a little bit of fun after spending all that time. Uh, you know, he's a master at, you know, getting himself mind and body in shape. Uh, you know, I think he's uh, you know, he's he's definitely he, he's on top of his trade. Uh, like many of us hopefully are. And um, I, there's a lot to be commended there. I'm not a fan of the individual, but um, I, I do think what he does and how he does it is, is absolutely remarkable. Jay Rosen. Shout out to both Twitter and uh, Facebook for shutting down the account of the former president of the United States uh, I don't know why it is, but I'm sleeping a lot easier these days. And I think if you imagine that, say, you lived in an apartment building and they were doing construction every day from six in the morning to 10 o'clock at night and you came home and you heard the metal and you heard the hum and it just couldn't go to sleep. But now suddenly I can go home and there's no more construction and there's no more noise. So thanks to Facebook and Twitter for turning off the noise. And I'm going to have a uh, shout-out slash rant uh, to KPMG and its now former U.K. Chairman Bill Michael. On Monday, the Financial Times reported that at a virtual town hall, Michael had made the following comments. He told uh, staff to, quote, quit moaning about uh, the coronavirus health crisis and the pressure they were under and to, quote, uh, stop playing the victim card. Uh, This was uh, reported by the FT. Uh, Two days later, he was suspended by uh, KPMG uh, UK, and today, as we're recording this on Friday the 12th, he's been terminated by uh, KPMG UK. So although normally I would say KPMG, uh, at least in the United Kingdom, has one of the worst corporate cultures around, uh, in this instance, I would give them some kudos because they recognized that uh, this was a completely inappropriate comment uh, by their head of their UK office. And I would just uh, add that he threw in gratuitously that uh, unconscious bias was, quote, complete crap, end quote. So when you have that type of leader, uh, you have a broken and toxic culture. So at least this time, KPMG UK did the right thing. Gentlemen, it's been a great episode. I wanted to thank everybody and I look forward to uh, what we come up with next time. Hey, Tom, can I say one more thing before we depart? You bet. I wanted to thank everyone for participating in the Baker Tilly's first annual Fraud and Compliance Summit on February 23rd through 25th. Uh, Looking forward to hearing comments from Jay Rosen, Jonathan Armstrong, Matt Kelly, and Tom Fox. Thank you so very, very much. We have close to 1,300 attendees so far. And I think that's a testament not only to to you folks and the, and the effort that you put forth, but the great lineup that we do have. Mr. Volkoff, who's not here today, is also participating in that. Uh, so we're going to link to that event in our show notes, so please register. It's uh, Jonathan's put together a fabulous panel. It's going to be over three days, and I greatly look forward to it. So kudos to you for putting it together, Jonathan.
My pleasure. Excellent. Gentlemen, until next time. Take care. Thanks, Bye. everyone. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. We've listed the contact information for all of the participants in the show notes. So if you have any questions on anyone's commentary, please contact them directly. Also, we will be live streaming this show for the foreseeable future. Uh, Please check us out on LinkedIn or Facebook. Uh, I put out announcements with the date and time. So I hope you will join us for a live stream presentation of Everything Compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.